Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. to back small businesses that make a big impact. It's the 2013 Small Business Awards on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Sage, the home of Sage Pastel Accounting and Payroll. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Chris, good morning. Are you back in the UK? Yes, I'm home. I'm back. Okay. Good morning. Well, good morning to you. Lovely to have you with us. Get your questions ready then. The Naked Scientist is with us. Our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. If you're too shy to speak on the radio, send your questions via SMS on 31702 and 31567. Right, let's get started. Chris, there was a story in the Sunday Times last week about uh, a, a new machine capable of complex procedures uh, that we are to benefit from a revolutionary robotic system capable of of performing these complex procedures is this the end of our doctors and our surgeons do you know anything <laughs> yeah. about this yes this is the the da vinci robotic system which is being brought to pretoria and this uh, has been around for a little while but it hasn't been obviously distributed across the world yet so i think this is the first time this is happening in south africa but the whole point of these robots is that you are not making the robot do the surgery. The surgeon still does the surgery, but instead of equipping the surgeon with a scalpel that he or she holds in their hand directly, you put the scalpel or the instrumentation in the hands of a robot and the surgeon controls the robot. What's the distinction? Oh. Well, it's quite important because what the uh, surgeon might have is a fine tremor or the inability to describe the perfect arc or a certain trajectory of uh, manipulation that they want to make whereas the robot can and do it smoothly and with more precision than a person can. And so the way this works is that the person sits at the controls of the robot, the robot holds the instruments and operates on the person, and then there's a computer between the two which can smooth and control and steady the movements of the surgeon to achieve even more precise um, intervention or operative technique than would otherwise be possible. And for... Certain types of surgery, and specifically really detailed surgery where, um, and in this case things like prostate surgery, where there may be nervous tissue very close that you do not want to damage, very close to glandular tissue that you want to cut through, then that could make the difference between a very good quality of life and a, high, a highly effective outcome for the patient and a much lower quality of life if a mistake is made. And that's where these robots are regarded as extremely helpful. Mm, very fascinating indeed. I have a question here from Luke, who, who is a student, a science student at Wits University, and he wants to know, what is a diamond's melting point? Uh, is liquid diamond possible? 
Uh, you don't get a uh, liquid diamond, Luke, because what happens with a diamond is that it undergoes the process called sublimation. And this is where the diamond goes from the solid straight into uh, a gas. You can't melt diamonds, I don't believe. The diamond will burn off, though. If you heat a diamond to a high enough temperature, and it's a, few, like a couple of thousand, a few thousand degrees, then it will actually begin to react with the oxygen around it, and it will just burn off and make carbon dioxide. Uh, but that temperature is quite high, and that's why diamonds are very resilient, because uh, mm -hmm. they're, apart from being extremely tough, you have to get them quite hot before they'll react in that way, but they don't melt. You can't make liquid diamond. All right, there's your answer then, Luke, and good luck with your studies. Naked scientist, what causes heartburn, and why is it called heartburn? Because uh, from my experience, it's not anywhere close to the, to the heart. Yes, so heartburn is where you have gastric acid. This is the chemical, the hydrogen, sorry, the hydrochloric acid in your stomach that is your digestive juices coming up into the gullet, the food pipe that connects the back of your throat to the stop of your, top of your stomach. And normally there is a sphincter, a physiological muscle contraction around the entry point which prevents things doing what's called refluxing, going back up the wrong way. But occasionally if this digestive juice does make its way back up into the gullet, unlike the stomach which is equipped with lots of defences to stop that acid attacking the wall of the stomach, the esophagus is much less well protected. So the digestive juices can get onto the wall of the esophagus, the food pipe, and they can irritate and chemically burn the cells there in the same way that acid would burn your skin. And this can cause injury, and over time, it can occasionally lead to other complications as well. And because the esophagus uh, is um, innervated, supplied by nerves, which supply a broad area of the chest, the pain that you feel when your esophagus is chemically irritated in this way can be referred over a large part of the chest thorax including back up into the back of your throat and as a result it can sometimes be misinterpreted as pain coming from the heart because your heart sits in front and to the left of where the esophagus goes down and so doctors when people come to them saying i've got indigestion are always very careful to make sure the person isn't having pain coming from their heart and vice versa Okay, our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567 or 11-883-0702. We're also taking your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31567. Let's take a break. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. And we're taking your calls. Let's go straight to uh, Errol in Kensington. Hi. Reedy, good morning. Good morning. Trout fishing. We use different colored flies to catch trout. How do we know the fish can see the different colors? And the corollary to that, when we're in the park, we used to wear brown and green gear. We're now told we should be wearing blue. Does it matter? Oh, hi, Errol. Having just uh, come back from Australia, where people are really big on their fishing there, especially after Barramundi up on the top northwest, uh, the answer to your question is that fish are very good at discriminating colours. And the evidence for this is both practical and also scientific. In a practical sense, if you look at fish, they are often brightly coloured themselves. And the reason for being brightly coloured can be twofold. One, it can be to put other things off of eating them because they're dangerous, which presupposes that other fish must be able to therefore interpret and see the colours. And also for mating and display purposes, fish often have gorgeous patterning to attract gorgeous mates. And if the other fish can't see these gorgeous patterns and colours, 
that would be pointless because it takes a lot of energy to make these beautiful colour pigments. So fish definitely can see colours and when we examine the retiny, the light sensitive eye structures in these fish, you can see that they do have photoreceptors, cones that can interpret colours. They tend to have different spectra of colours that they are most sensitive to compared with us though, because if you think about it, when light goes into the water, light, water strongly absorbs red light. And so most fish lose the ability, especially as if they're deeper dwellers, to discriminate much red light. Having said that, there are fish which have re-evolved to live very, very deeply in the ocean and make and see red light. And there are these things called dragonfish, they're stomid fish which are predatory fish and they have a light organ on the top of their head which sends out a very intense red light like a searchlight which other fish can't see because they can't see red light but the dragonfish does see red light so it can go around hunting if you like with this invisible almost like infrared beam that the other fish can't see and it can see these fish jump on them and eat them and it can also use it for mating because the only fish that can see it are fish that might want to mate with it. Now to go back to your trout point, point of view, um, fish definitely are sensitive to um, blue light because water conducts blue quite well which is why water looks blue uh, because it reflects it quite nicely and fish are also sensitive to where the sky is which is why they tend to have an, a silvery underside which disguises them uh, against fish looking from below upwards because it makes the underside of the fish look a bit like the sky. So uh, they can definitely see those colours what should an angler do to make themselves look invisible? Well, the old adage of standing there in green is that it's very hard to pick you out from the bushes and trees that are behind you if you look the same colour they do. Um, whether you should look blue, well, that might reflect the fact that if you're standing in the middle of a river, the view the fish is going to have is one of the sky, so you're harder to see if you look blue because you'll look like the sky. Ah, Errol, thank you very much for the call. Robert in Johannesburg, good morning. Hi, Reed, how are you? Good. What's your question? Oh, I want to know, you. Uh, this week you were speaking to the professor about the brain plasticity, mm-hmm. something like that, that the brain shrinks, but it doesn't lose the brain, we don't lose the brain cells actually. So I just want Chris to explain it if he knows anything about it. Oh, Chris, we're talking about brain health as you age. Uh, there were a lot of questions about what happens to your brain as uh, as as you age. And uh, one concept that was explored was brain plasticity. So Robert wants to know more about that and what it means. Hello, Robert. Well, the answer with brain plasticity, plasticity is the way in which we learn. The brain contains something like 100 billion nerve cells. These are tiny cells which have connections to each other. And those connections are how the cells store information. And when a cell becomes active, it sends a signal to another cell, changing the activity of that second cell and a third cell and so on. And these networks are how the brain stores information. And when we start life, we have many, many connections between many, many nerve cells. As we learn things, we change the strength of those connections. There was a famous neurophysiologist, almost um, about 70 years ago, called Donald Hebb who said that things that fire together wire together. In other words, if you've got a nerve cell that fires off at the same time as another nerve cell, the connection between them is strengthened, and the converse is also true, weakened. So that's how our brain goes from being an organ which starts life as as a fixed structure with lots of connections, learns, because you alter the strength of these connections, storing information. As your brain ages, it's inevitable in the same way that all other parts of your body age, there will be cells that are lost and died, and therefore the connections that those cells would have harboured will be lost. 
the brain compensates for the loss of these cells by altering the connectivity so that you're wiring around the broken circuit. It's a bit like putting jump leads on a car to go around a broken wire, for example. And in this way, you keep the brain optimally working throughout life, even in the face of having lost one or two cells. And also, if the brain suffers an injury, like a stroke or some other kind of dementing disease, the effect is... Uh, attenuated or mitigated by the fact that the brain can adapt to the damage that's been done to it, finding alternative pathways to wire around the problem and therefore improving your function up to a point. Chris, I want to ask you about the story, the relationship between sleep deprivation and uh, food purchases. What's that about? Well, there's some quite good evidence now, Reedy, that you should never go shopping when you're really tired. Yes. <laughs> because um, if you do this, it tends to, the tiredness tends to distort your perception of what you really want to eat. So in studies that people have done, they find that people who go shopping when they're sleep deprived tend to buy all the wrong things. They tend to go for high calorie, bad for you, big sugar fix type things, which they wouldn't buy were they not so tired. And this is underpinned by studies in brain scanners where people have looked at people uh, who are sleep deprived and people who are not sleep deprived they've shown them various objects while they're in the brain scanner including things you wouldn't want to eat and then food items which are either bad for you and very sugary and high in calories or things which are more sensible to consume and they find that the sleep deprived people tend to go for the stuff which is much worse for them and this is involved in lighting up a part of the brain concerned with pleasure and they they see more kind of anticipated pleasure uh, with the bad for you food item when tired compared for, with the um, same food item when less tired or a healthy food item when not tired at all all right let's go to is it gerald gerald in four weeks good morning hello really and hello chris mm-hmm my question for the naked scientist is: um, uh, I'm a contractor on the, um, in the, to do repairs and renovations. They, um, uh, the old people normally say put salt in the cement to make it stronger, and I just want to know if there's any truth in it, and if it is like that, why uh, can't it maybe just come out with the ingredient that makes it stronger? You know, putting salt into like cement, Chris. Yeah, hi, general. Well, I haven't come across the idea of putting salt in because the c- cement is effectively lime. It's calcium oxide, which has been made by taking calcium carbonates and a few other things to get the recipe right, heating them to a very high temperature to drive off the carbon dioxide. Then you mix in some water and the lime, the calcium oxide, becomes calcium hydroxide and then it starts to react with carbon dioxide again from the atmosphere, forming limestone again. Now, I've not come across the idea of actually putting salt in there in order to, uh, to, to make it work better. I can't see exactly why it would. The, the thing that you can add that you'll know very well, Gerald, is detergent because one of the big pains in making concrete and cement is bubbles. And if you put some detergent into the cement, then it reduces the surface tension of the water that's keeping the cement runny. And that... Uh, means that it's less likely to enable air bubbles to form so you'll get a smoother finish with your cement when you put it down and it's easier to get the bubbles to come out because they'll be much smaller and they'll be less damaging, potentially deleterious to the concrete once it goes off. Thank you very much, Gerald, for the call. Our lines are open for you, 021-446-0567 or 11-883-0702. We're also taking your SMSs. Donald in Valdefreden Park, hi. Hi, Reddy. Hi, Chris. I just wanted to find out, I often wonder, what would happen if I were to take a raw egg and put it in hot, boiling cooking oil? A raw egg? Yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> Do you mean not having... Throw an egg in, in, in hot, boiling cooking oil. But without actually breaking open the egg, cracking the egg, just put it in in the shell. Is that right? <laughs> well, the answer is, Donald, that this would probably be quite dangerous because what will happen is that the heat from the boiling oil, which is going to be far higher than the temperature of boiling water, water boils at 100 degrees C, very, very hot, deep fat fryers are running at maybe maybe 150, maybe in some cases 200 degrees C. And if you drop the egg in there, the egg is going to pick up energy from the hot oil and it's going to cause the proteins inside the egg to denature, go stiff and hard and solid, mm. and also the, there's a, a small amount of gas inside the egg, and that gas will expand very fast, and this will have the effect probably of causing the egg to rupture, because the pressure inside the egg will rise so quickly, and this will burst the egg, throwing any proteins that have got water into them out into the oil. The water will boil in the oil, expanding into steam, making a very big volume of steam underneath the oil and throwing a big shower of oil up on you. So you, I, I think it would be a very bad idea and very mm. dangerous thing to do. Okay, Donald, stay away from the eggs or the cooking oil or both of them. Uh, here's an SMS. Why, when some people get nervous, do their necks or chests go blotchy or red and others don't? That's from Jenny. Ah, this is a very interesting question. And this is all to do with the sort of blushing phenomenon. This is uh, a vascular phenomenon, blood vessel related, and it's because the sympathetic nervous system, which is the automatic part of your nervous system that responds to things unconsciously, you don't have to think about them, this in some people causes, when, when they feel stressed or when they feel embarrassed, it causes the blood vessels to open up or close down in different parts of the body. We don't know exactly why some people get this more or less than others, but it's a way in which we display our feelings. So when someone says something feels embarrassed, then they tend to have a red face because you increase the blood flow to those parts of the body. And when people are angry, the same thing tends to happen. So I think this is a vascular phenomenon. It's your nervous system triggering blood vessels to open up. And it's probably the evolutionary origin of this is probably nonverbal communication of feelings to uh, other individuals in the group. They can see that you've said something that either mm. causes you uh, some kind of subconscious or unconscious pain, um, emotional pain, or makes you annoyed. Yeah. Desiree in Hans Bay, hi. Yes, hi. Uh, my question is, and Hans Bay, in the evening, the radio reception is rather bad, very noisy. But when I put the, the antenna in my hand, it becomes perfect. When you so touch the antenna. I'm sort of antenna. <laughs> now I want to know, is it bad for me or does it matter? Oh, okay. I wanted. To, I thought you wanted to ask why does that happen. I want to know why it happens, Chris. And then, of course, is it bad for her or not? Desiree, are you listening on FM or AM? AM. Yes, it's quite common for AM signals to get a lot worse at night time, and the reason for this is that AM amplitude modulated signals go up into the air, and around the planet is a so-called ionosphere. There's a cloud of charged particles up in the atmosphere and these can interact with radio transmissions and, and act a bit like a mirror and reflect them back down towards the Earth's surface. During the day, because the Earth is being assailed by radiation from the sun and light, this pushes the ionosphere closer to the Earth's surface. So that reflective path is shorter and the origin of the transmissions which can be reflected down to you is over a smaller geographical area. Therefore, fewer transmissions can interfere with each other. 
At night time, the quality of the transmissions tends to deteriorate on AM because the loss of that so-called photon pressure, the, the fact that it's night, means the ionosphere becomes higher in the sky and therefore the number of different AM sources, different radio stations and transmissions which can reflect on that patch of the sky will be greater and therefore the chance of interference with your signal you're listening to will be greater, which is why AM or medium wave tends to be worse at night time. When you hold on to the aerial, what you're probably doing is A, helping to move the aerial into a slightly better configuration to pick up what signals there are, and you're also making yourself part of the antenna. You're a human antenna, and you're gathering more electrical signals, which are coming back from space, feeding them into your radio, helping it to uh, respond to the signal better so you get a clearer signal. It's not doing you any harm at all. All right, Desri, continue touching that antenna. Let's go to Sam in Rustenburg. Hi. Hi, Rudy. Uh, I just want to ask uh, Chris there, when you're standing on the, say, say you're watching the, the, the car driving past the palisade fencing, the rings tend to look like they're turning back. What causes that? Is it just my eyes or am I seeing something? Uh, you're seeing a, a stroboscopic effect. So when you go along the road in your car, your, your wheels are turning at a certain rate. Mm-hmm. And at night time, when they're illuminated by streetlights or when you're passing, uh, a, say, a fence with holes in the fence, this is illuminating the wheels a certain number of times every second. And if we just think through the experiment, so if you've got a wheel, and let's imagine we make a chalk mark at the 12 o'clock position, if the wheel goes round once, then the chalk mark will come back to where it started and you can't tell whether the wheel has gone round or not. But let's imagine that we illuminate the wheel um, twice in the time it takes to go round. You'll see a chalk mark at the top and then at the bottom and then back at the top again in the next glimpse. Are you with me so far? Okay, Sam, are you with us? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yep. So now let's imagine that we illuminate the wheel even more frequently. Let's, let's illuminate the wheel three times in the time it takes to go round. So you'll see a chalk mark at the one o'clock time, you'll see one at four o'clock, then and so on. And what is happening in the road with the street lights or whatever is that the lights are flicking on and off with mains electricity 120 times a second because it's 60 hertz electricity and so you're seeing 120 glimpses of the wheel and if the uh, wheel gets round to where it started almost all the way around but not quite where it started before the next glimpse comes in then it looks like because the wheel has been illuminated then dark illuminated it looks like it's actually going backwards not forwards Thank you very much for the question. We've, oh, geez, it's, it's at the time now. Oh, Thomas, I had like uh, three yeah. marks. Oh, <laughs> it's no. <gone> quick. <laughs> no, my head is not here. I'm busy going through the lovely SMSs. We'll have to park them uh, until next week. Thank you very much, Chris. We'll chat to you next week. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Oh, that felt so short. Are you guys sure that it's three minutes to ten? Is there something wrong with this clock in the studio? It feels like we started ten minutes ago. Oh, I'm sulking now. Big sulk. We'll do this again next week. And of course, do visit our website to download the podcast. No, man.